Chazal teach us Hatamidim Krim Banim, our students are our children. Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, Rosh Hashiva Tarat Sion, is both a Talmud and a son. It gave great nachat ruach and satisfaction to Rav Aaron Zatzal to see his eldest son, Rav Moshe, join the leadership of the yeshiva. Rav Moshe, together with Rav Yaakov Meidan and Rav Baruch Gigi, carries on the legacy of the yeshiva and continues the chain of generations of great Torah leadership. Now, with Rav Aaron's passing, the responsibility is that much greater. Despite the deep sorrow felt by us, the alumni, parents, and friends of Yeshiva Taratzion, we are comforted that Rav Moshe Lichtenstein is at the helm of Yeshiva Taratzion. Vasfina lo notra lelo karbanit. Maksha, Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein. Shus, my mother, and everybody else. Uh, I'll begin uh, to calm my nerves, maybe, uh, by thanking, first of all, the hosts of, uh, of the event, both uh, the Jewish Center uh, and everyone in the Edson Foundation who's worked so hard uh, not only to make this evening possible, but throughout the years to support my father uh, in his life's work at the Yeshiva and this Organizing tax evening is just another element in the long line support, which he appreciated uh, very much, and I thank you very much for that. Um, I don't think I'll say anything original tonight. Actually, I'm not only the last speaker tonight. As the Spadim, I begin to wind down after uh, the Shiva and the Shloshim and uh, the post Shloshim. Um, this probably is one of the last major Spadim. Um, and uh, whatever it can be said, I will probably repeat what has been said in many, many espedim and actually see that as a bracha, as something which I'm glad and not something which I feel that therefore I have nothing to say. Rather, the more the same truths are repeated, if if it is not one person testifying, but rather many people have a multiplicity of angles and perspectives, repeat the same story, apparently is objective truth, not only the subjective view of the lone person who sees things in his own special, unique way. Rather, if everyone sees the same thing, apparently what you see is what you're getting or what you had. And therefore, by once more stating what I think has already been stated, just uh, reaffirm uh, how indeed true this was. I will make one last introductory remark. I usually don't write up uh, in full uh, when I speak in public. Maybe I should, but uh, the pressures of teaching in the yeshiva don't often allow for that to happen. Um, it's not the first time speaking to such a large crowd. But I wrote on everything and reread and crossed my uh, T's and dotted my I's. Um, I am simply tremendously apprehensive. Not because of the crowd, though maybe also because of the crowd, but I think because of one person who is not here, yet he's here. I was asked to speak on my father's 60th birthday, and I declined. I felt that speaking 
create in one sense a certain distance and detachment which I could not allow myself at the time. Even worse, speaking creates a sense of authority. If you could bless someone, if you could describe him, you were in a sense claiming a certain authority to understand, to analyze. And I did not feel at the time I had the emotional uh, strength to do that, nor the legitimacy. I probably thought to myself at the time, and I sort of remember thinking that, when it'll be 80, maybe I'll be able to do it. Uh, and then I thought, well, a hesped, that's what you're supposed to do. And I feel even more apprehensive, because now it's absolute, my father's place of absolute truth. I don't want to say anything. Hesped, by its definition, requires analysis, as I said before. And I want, I really am really full of fear and trembling that in my attempt to appreciate and to celebrate, I may err in inaccuracy and I may be rushing in where I should not be rushing in. Nevertheless, mitzvahi, and I will do my best, uh, I know my father would tell me to calm down and to uh, and not to worry, though I cannot say that. So, and therefore, B'shuschem, once more, I will actually begin. Whatever uh, you mark at the Hesped, uh, at the Levaya, was that I really should be maspied, both a father and Rosh Hashiva. However, I would only be maspied at the Levaya, at the funeral itself, as a child, because no the child takes precedence over the Talmud, and even though, if, even if I neglect the halachic uh, context of that statement, it's a much deeper emotional real truth. The parent-child relationship is more basic, more primeval than any other relationship, and therefore, at the time, I focused my childhood memories and family experiences. As did my siblings. Since then, 40 days have passed. Much has been said. Much has been written by my father, Harini Kabash Mishkavo. And I'm also at a different emotional stage. Immediate loss, sudden grief, had given way to introspection and appreciation as the stages of Avelis progress. Therefore, I will allow myself tonight to eulogize my father, Premise Rosh Hashiva. Needless to say, my words will nevertheless serve a deep emotional need for myself as a son, as well as the Talmud, not only because of the natural pride that a son feels in his father's achievements and successes, because my father lived a life in which his varying roles coexisted, his complementary elements that created an integrated home. While he recognized that different roles can people each other at times on a practical level, he viewed them as complementary on a higher level. Well, this is true of many roles. It was primarily true of the role of father and teacher. Actually, I think my father never really saw them as two separate roles, but as one and the same. The brisker credo that the parent-child relationship expresses itself through learning, an idea that I've heard also forcefully expressed, was basic to my father's essence. The yeshiva was part and parcel of the household when I was growing up, and my father's relationship with yeshiva was constantly present. Therefore, I am not only dressing as a child whose pride was father's achievement, but as a child who saw his, whose father saw his quote-unquote professional role as part of his parenthood.
The last thing in the Shiva, 11 p.m., as the Shiva was winding down, the last Menachem were preparing to leave, one of them asked us, what did we learn about our father during the week of the Shiva? Initially, I told him that essentially, the Shiva did not reveal to us a new person or expose hidden chapters in his biography. No one dramatically came forward to tell of a secret life or to describe unfulfilled yearnings. No one produced hidden documents or told us about poetry written on the side and hidden in the drawer which uh, he could now produce. He would know uh, neither skeletons nor uh, another reverse. To a large degree, we were told what we already knew and had experienced through many years. Uh, my father... In the words of one of his favorite quotes, he saw life steadily and he saw it whole. And therefore, I was not surprised that there were no surprises. We heard many, many interesting stories and insights about him. As an aside, I'll mention, as I mentioned before uh, to some people, uh, all the stories that I heard in the past, and I suspect that they may be apocryphal, may be part of the Harrison mythology, they all turned out to be true, to the very last of them. I now know now that they indeed transpired, but even more so, I can assign a name and a face to each and every story. Every protagonist of every story has come for identified himself. They are accurate and authentic. Truth is, I shouldn't have been surprised by this either. However, all these stories enhanced, illuminated our existing knowledge, but did not change the fundamental picture that we're familiar with. However, upon further reflection after a few minutes, I said to the person who asked, I think there's one thing that I indeed realized during the Shiva and was unaware of previously, and that was, we discovered the scope and the intensity of his Talmudian's feelings towards him. The truth is, I doubt that my father himself properly appreciated this. No one could have imagined prior to the Petir and the Shiva how deep and how intense these feelings were. My father, Irene Kapersi was well aware that he was loved by his Talmudian, he, was, he knew that he was appreciated by them. There were a string of events in recent years, both in Israel and here in New York, that um, expressed these feelings. Nevertheless, none of us, neither my father, the children, the Talmudi, my mother, fully appreciate their intensity. Neither one nor two alumni have told me how deeply impacted they have been my father's, by my father's ptira, and how they themselves were unaware of the strength of the bond to the Rebbe until a month ago, despite the fact that they knew there was a strong connection and they were in constant touch with him. Parts of the reasons I wrote this so I described before, um, parts of them uh, I described in the past upon Rebbe Tal's ptira, Nevertheless, uh, I'd like to illustrate this a bit more. People came specifically from the Levaya, excuse me, came specifically from overseas to Levaya and the Shiva. Talmudim in Israel rearranged their entire work week to allow themselves to participate in the Levaya. Others who couldn't come followed online ways 
that reveal the sense of mishpacha that I mentioned above. We were told about doctors and businessmen who watched online the Levaya and then walked into meetings teary-eyed and even about a dentist who requested permission from a firm patient to listen to the spadian as she treated him. True story. All of these reveal intensive relationship that is both extraordinary and inspiring. Who would get up 3 a.m. New York time to watch the Leviah online if the nifter wasn't close family member? One of the close, one of the close Talmidim told me during the Shiva, and I quote, I know that I've lost a father because my children feel as if, as if they have lost a grandfather. To achieve such a bond, there are two vital components. Obviously, there must be a deep relationship of love, love of care, empathy, and giving that a parent feels towards a child. We heard Rabbi Rothschild discuss this a few minutes ago also. Only a Rebbe has a deep love for his students who fully lives the ideal of a shinantim levanechel talmidim, that your students are your children, can successfully create a true and lasting relationship with them. The idea, this ideal can be realized in many different ways, just as there's a multiplicity of parental modes, but it must be the bedrock of any bond between Rebbe and Talmud. However, this alone will not suffice. For unlike a biological parent, whose role is stressed upon parent and child without choice, the Talmud can choose any potential Rebbein. What, therefore, may I ask, caused so many Talmudim to establish such a unique bond with my father and Kavas Mishkovo? If I ask myself the question what creates such a bond, I cannot answer it without first posing the same question, about quoting the same question as posed by Nisha Hashuva, who knew my father even better than I did, my mother. In her unique manner, my mother commented to us after Levaya, very strange. A person who was extremely uncharismatic had thousands of people attracted like a magnet to his funeral. I would add that the Levaya was indeed extraordinary, but not by virtue of the number alone. Haredi funerals routinely attract larger numbers by the fact that nearly all of the Malavim were deeply impacted by my father, Enkavos Mishkovo, either directly as Talmidim or indirectly as children, parents, friends, or a variety of other modes of contact, and all from the category of Talmidei Talmideihom. <coughs> Where's the secret of this bond? The answer upon reflection would seem quite obvious. Charisma does not create relationships. It attracts followers. If there's a need to excite the masses or to deliver a message to a large group in a short period of time, the means of doing so is the mean of charisma. It enables the delivery of short, soundbite-length messages to large groups. It utilizes slogans, firebrand rhetoric, catchy phrases, and force of personality to arouse passions and defend the flames of excitement. All of this is indeed very efficient and useful for certain purposes, but it does not and cannot create long-term relationships. Vermitel Zatzal was fond, according to Medrash, that all of the gay rim, all the converts that Avraham Avinu converted, 
all revert to their previous idolatrous ways until Yitzchak Avinu came and we converted them. The reason being that Avram attracted them by charismatic means that captured their imagination. He erected Mizbachot, he created these billboards, he basically he turned to the masses, Yitzchak looked inwards. If Avram was chesed, an outpouring of love, Yitzchak was gvura, retreat and withdrawal inwards. Therefore, Yitzchak may have not attracted as large a number of followers as Avraham, those that followed him did so because of his thoroughness and therefore remained committed forever. If you look at the Chumash, and I lack the time now to analyze these, these episodes, everything Yitzchak does is a repeat performance, a rerun of Avram's life. What is its goal? To reestablish and to get a sense of permanence to Avram's achievements. To cite just one Point, Avram calls Be'er Sheva, Be'er Sheva. We all, every Rosh Hashanah, we read the Pasuk, Ve'ikrashem ir Be'er Sheva. However, we then read five chapters later in Chumash, how Yitzchak has to rename the city. Ve'ikrashem ir Be'er Sheva, and then the, the Torah mentions, Al-Kein Shem ha'ir Be'er Sheva, therefore it's called Be'er Sheva, Ad Hayom Hazed, to this very day. Avram called it Beersheva, it was erased over time. Yitzchak called it Beersheva, it remained Beersheva forever. Yitzchak was able to go and to reestablish what Avram had achieved. Because he was thorough, inward-looking, the Gvura was able to give permanence to the Chesed. The same observation can be made about Rabbi Kiva's early period of 24,000 Talmidim, who came to Nott, as opposed to five Talmudim later on, who reestablished Torah, and so on and so forth. In a similar manner, I would suggest that my father, Hareni Kaparas Mishkavo, did not need to be charismatic in the conventional sense, since he had much better and more thorough tools. Sincerity, integrity, humility, passion, commitment, compassion, and thoroughness, and probably many others that I forgot to mention. To put it differently, his shining personal example and his desire to instill his vows as Talmidim opened their minds and their hearts. Chazal teach us that the Rebbe must represent the ideals of Torah and their Heretz and be an embodiment of them. Not coincidentally, many of the Maspidim, including Talvai itself, saw fit to quote the Gmar Moed Katan, Rabbi Yochanan, my Dixik, Yisifsi Chodish Mu'udas, with Torah action with Piyu, what does the Pasuk mean when it talks about the lips of the Kohen creating Torah and people flocking to your Torah from him? Ki malach Hashem because he's like an angel, divine angel. Im domeh rav malach Hashem, if the Rav behaves as embodiment of divine characteristics, yivakshu tarami piu, people seek Torah from him. Vim lav, and if not, no one will be interested in his Torah. Since there are time constraints tonight, my father would be masked in the yeshiva for 90 minutes. Uh, he spoke, he was master of Hutner, 90 minutes. Rabban Soloveitchik, 90 minutes. The Baba Rebbe, close to 90 minutes. Uh, since I have Rachmanus, uh, and the watch, uh, 
I will therefore uh, restrict myself to two or three uh, points. Um, yeah, I'd like to focus upon only, I said before, two or three points that, ex- that will exhibit, I hope, how we live life steadily and how we live life whole. However, before I do so, I'd like to make the following comment. My father in Kavars Mishkavo wrote important articles in Ashkaf and Lamdus that are certainly part of his legacy to us. However, no less significant as his primary legacy, if not even more, as befits Rosh Hashiva, are his Talmidim. The transmission of Torah and humanistic values through the oral medium of addressing people and of imprinting directly upon them was a major part of his life's work. Torah Shabal Pen, the deepest and most basic sense of the term, namely the soul of an Oved Hashem impacting upon a fellow soul and imprinting on it. I'll begin with integrity. As I said, I will not discuss anything which was not mentioned by previous Maspidim. And I'll do so mainly through the medium of stories. I could cite stories about his monetary integrity, what Mr. Zishar might call Midata Zihirut, such as the time when he shipped his office looking for something, and after he couldn't find Shosh Tal, the chief administrator of the office for many, many decades, um, he went to her desk, took some sheets of blank paper, and then told the junior secretary, quote, please tell Shosh I took four sheets of paper. Or how he insisted upon leaving a few quarters in the school office in Cleveland when the payphone was broken, despite the tremendous contribution he had to the school when the school was established and the support he gave them. Uh, however, I want to focus upon a much more impressive form of integrity, that of sacrificing one's own beliefs, to the service or to lay them at the altar of personal integrity. I will say this with two stories. A while ago, my father was approached by close friends to be Masada Kiddushin. As you all know, he was Masada Kiddushin thousands of times in his life, probably. In this particular instance, the Kala was very insistent that my father write both her father's name and her mother's name. And uh, my father wasn't too excited about the idea, but when he saw how important it was to her, he was willing um, to consider it. And he then began, every wedding he went, to begin to canvas uh, opinions of other Rabbanim, what they thought of it. He heard four different answers. There, was, there were those who told him, go ahead and do it, no problem. There were those who told him, absolutely do not do it. I think he understood both of these people. Both those who told him to do it, those who not to do it, he understood their considerations, and he either agreed or disagreed, was not disturbed by what he was told. However, he then met two other groups. Those who told him, don't write it, but read it under the chuppah. In other words, uh, what you say is not what you're doing. The others said the reverse. Write it, but don't read it under the chuppah. I'm convinced that my father could not understand either of the latter two groups. Those who did not believe in presenting what they were doing, who were embarrassed or tried to conceal or to play to the crowds, those I thought he simply could not uh, understand and begin, could understand their language. However, this was not the end of it. After he felt that the kala was so insistent, and I think he was willing to go ahead and do it, after halachically, there's certainly no problem, 
he nevertheless decided to do something else. He then told me, I have to go and ask the request permission for the Rav Rashi of Yushalayim and the Rav Rashi Yisrael. I thought that uh, both Rav Rashi and the Rav of Yushalayim, despite the fact that they were Talmudic Chachamim, they were fine Talmudic Chachamim, I felt my father was no Talmudic Chachamim than they were. I said to him, well, why do you need a permission? Uh, you are no less a uh, Posek than they are, and uh, you certainly can decide on your own. And he did not argue with that, but he said to me, I understand you. I'm Sarah Kola Shaliach. I'm only working their behalf. The Rabbanu to Rashid to the Rabbanu Yushalayim are in charge of arranging weddings. I'm simply a, a laborer for them. I'm simply doing their, uh, their work. So it's not my decision. It's their decision. So therefore, whatever they tell me, that's what I'll do. So I don't know what they told him, but I certainly know that, uh, whatever he thought, he, he thought his, uh, that his commitment to be a shaliach of theirs overrode any personal opinion he may have had. In another major uh, public issue, uh, which I will not get into its details at the moment, uh, my father sat a government commission, and his particular perspective was different than that that the government had adopted. Nevertheless, when the time came to summarize uh, each of the committee members after they heard uh, all kinds of testimonies and opinions uh, over a period of a few months. When time came for each committee member to present his position, my father came and he um, yes follows. Personally, I disagree with the government's whole direction on this topic. However, since the government has the prerogative of following other opinions, and since it's relying upon a reputable post scheme, if this is the government's pr- pr- position, they should do A, B, C, D, E. It's rather than doing what almost everybody else would do, certainly anyone has any political experience, namely having his position adopted by presenting uh, his own position, he said, given the fact that your axiom is as follows, you should do, you should do everything else. He basically presented a reverse opinion of what he thought and what he passed because he thought that as a member of government commission, he should present the government's position and not his own position. Similarly, I'd like to add, and this is not quite integrity, but in a sense it's related to it, um, I'd like to mention the identity of some of the Menachem who came during the Shiva. We were flooded during the Shiva by thousands of Menachemim, who, and when I say thousands, I mean literally. And uh, as my mother said, it was all an outpouring of love and a deep connection by each and every one of them. However, I'd like to point out the following. Many Rabbanim came, many Talmidim came, of course. However, the fact that Chief Rabbi, well-known Rosh Yeshiva, pays a Shiva call to the family of a deceased Rosh Yeshiva is nice, it's comforting, but it's not surprising and not unique. What was much more special was some of the other Menachemim, who my father left indelible oppression upon them, and they felt the need to come. What we have in mind is the second day of the Shiva, when the entire kitchen staff of the yeshiva showed up, including each and every Arab worker of Yeshivat HaRetzion. Some of them, actually we were told that some of them cried when they told my father's Ptira. My father was hospitalized last year. The Arab worker every day would ask me, Mashlom Harava Gadol. And they deeply cared about him because they saw him and they knew that he cared about them. A day later, on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the door opened, in walked 
the owner of the Makol that the cross is from house in Katamon. It was at least 10 years since my father stopped being an active customer as a Makolet, and he was an active customer at the time. Uh, he felt the need to take a vacation day, to schlep out to Alon Shutim Yushalayim, to come and sit with us for close to an hour, to tell, to reminisce and tell stories. I asked him, where is the greater Rosh Hashiva? Those who a chief rabbi comes to Menachem, or those who a Baal Makolet comes to Menachem? And it wasn't one, there were three, because my father over the years, uh, bought and feed Makolot. So three different Mali Makolot came to, uh, A day later, came the owner of the jewelry shop, in which my father used to buy jewelry for his wife and daughters. Uh, he too came, uh, These, in a sense, were the true test of Rosh Hashiva. Do only Rabbanim come? Do kitchen workers, Makolot owners come? to express a sense of loss and appreciation. It is deep personal integrity which causes these people to come for Shiva. Second value which, which complement the integrity was integration. A hallmark of my father's writings is the attempt to integrate different values. Invariably, an article of his begins with contrasting conflicting values Yet notice in a variable concludes that a note of integration and harmony. In this regards, the comments of the Rav may be illuminating. The Rav's writings are deeply dialectical, not only in content, but in tone as well. Typological contests are sharply drawn, and there's a palpable sense of tension. When speaking of Adam the first, his greatness is unqualified. So too is the presentation of Adam II. Indeed, each is so forcefully presented, it's left to the reader to work out reconciliation between these two conflicting ideals, since the author has not bothered to do so. You read The Only Man of Faith, at the end of the day, you can't figure out whether Adam I has been knocked out or remains a vital player. Many of you have been left wondering what, if anything, is left in the world of Adam I, after he's been shoved aside by Adam II. Dialectic in the world of the Rav is achieved by heightened tension and deep contrast. Actually, the Rav states so explicitly in one of his published articles, and I quote, Man is a dialectical being, an inner schism runs through his personality at every level. I'm skipping a bit. Judaic dialectic, only the Hegelian, is irreconcilable, hence interminable. Judaism accepted dialectic consisting only of thesis and antithesis. The third Hegelian stage, that reconciliation is missing. The conflict is final, almost absolute. Only God must be reconciled. We do not. Complete reconciliation is an ecological vision. And I quote one sentence. It is obvious that dialectical man can be committed to uniform homogeneous morality. If man is dialectical, so is his moral gesture. This sense of a dichotomy which is left to the reader to some reconcile or not to reconcile is basic to the Rav. My father, having come Mishkavah's world, is very different. It too recognizes a multifaceted world in which conflicting elements clash for our spiritual attention and he too advocated his writings and teachings the need to reconcile many values. However, it seems to me, the major importance of his teachings is not necessarily the novelty of the ideas themselves or the dialectical presentation per se, rather it is the very ability to balance and harmonize them, 
despite their inherent tension. In a relatively recent article, he addressed this point head on and characteristically utilizing a quote from Hamlet and from the Mechilta, described himself as to devil business bound. Thus, despite describing at length the inherent tensions that life its multiplicity presents in Ovid Hashem, who wants to live it fully, the underlying message is one of harmony and integration. In the central patch of the essay, which is an introspective and retrospective piece, he himself poses the question of achieving harmony within dialectical tension and addresses it head on. And I quote once more. After presenting the tensions, which I'll skip here, what then, conclude my father in Kavos Mishkavu asks, what then we conclude that confrontation with devil business inevitably entails a measure of anguish or even torment? Need we regard it as in part reflecting the character of human life, as in Hobbes' pungent phrase, nasty, rush and short, and in part rendering it, rendering it as such? Certainly not. In this sense, Rashbi's devil business is not ideological, axiological speaking, quite dual at all. Of course, the pragmatic plane, initiatives may clash, schedules conflict, and priorities short of long-term determine. Now I'm skipping again. Devil business and unity of persons, uh, and unity of purpose par excellence, at once passionate and majestic. This was the gist of the letter in the Quintess of Rabbi Elliot Kaplan's rich, albeit tragic, brief life. Not his alone, however. Looking retrospectively upon my own, I note more clearly and more fully than I heard the message articulated, the power and the consistency within which it was born in upon me, meaning the harmony. This was the heart of the legacy I received at home, and a bottom was common to my primary Derek, the Rav, his brother of Aaron, and the Rav Shiva, Rav Hutner, and to conclude... Hence, at some clash, the level implementation between these greedy normative systems is inevitable. Yet, whatever one's ashkaf regarding optimal balance, no one assumes this factor dictates total bifurcation. We take the integration and reciprocal fruitification for granted. And this indeed was my father's vision. It was reported to me recently. Someone came to speak to him about combining secular knowledge and Torah. And my father said to him as follows, and I don't think I can translate this, Yesh zochim lishnei shulchanot v'yesh noflim ben akisaot. Some achieve both worlds and some fall between the cracks. My father zochal lishnei shulchanot. In this context, I'd like to reiterate what was stated above regarding the human element and its primary role in his life's work and to emphasize this from a dual perspective. First, the focus of his writings is the challenges facing contemporary over Hashem. If the Rev Robert Adam and focus on the basic underlying human condition, open your eyes to the human condition per se, believing its application up to us, my father in Kabbalah Mishkovo often addressed contemporary man and guided him through the maze of contemporary spiritual life as a teacher guides his students. More importantly, his life was an embodiment of the ability to live an integrated and harmonious life. The harmony within his soul, his ability to benefit spiritually from many worlds, to recognize the positive and, valuable inher- and, and value inherent within many disparate disciplines without closing his eyes to the dangers lurking within them, 
was the greatest lesson that he gave us. Simply put, his life is the most impressive article that he wrote. Zes Sefer Todot Adam, as embodying the Eilat Todot Aharon, is the book that left the greatest and most lasting impression upon myself and many others. In the words of Esalevi, in this case, the body and the soul of Mitchacham become the cloth of a Sefer Torah. Let me relate a personal memory to illustrate the uniqueness of my father and Kaparzmi's ability to combine and harmonize disparate elements and to realize them within his soul. When I was in the 12th grade, I asked my father to take us to meet our footnotes at Sal. After an interesting, after an interesting and stimulating visit of Hutter's home, Yushalayim, I saw it was a good idea. I made a similar request a year later to visit another of his mentors, but this time not to Mr. Abayim, but to Douglas Bush, his Rebbe, quote unquote, at Harvard. Bush was an extremely impressive person, a Christian humanist in the best sense of the word, and my father called Carl Bush. We went at a wonderful time with him and with his wife, who was a Gavra Rabbin, extremely impressive. Um, I assume this is probably the last time my father met Bush. Both these visits were fascinating visits, not only because of the people involved, but also because the opportunity they provided me as a window into an early per- periods of my father's life and religions that I heard much about but never observed firsthand. As part of the Avelis experience and the desire to remember and relive the past, I reminded myself recently of these visits and thought to myself, my father in Kaparas Mishkovo belonged to a select group of Tamidir of Hutner Zatzal. Although he was certainly not the only one, it was still a small select group. As to Bush, Douglas that is, um, how many Talmidim, not students, how many Talmidim did Bush have? Ramital used to ask this question often, and he knew the answer. Quit Ramital, he was one professor in America with one Talmud. Even if I assume there are a few more that Ramital never met, uh, they probably do not exceed single digits. So I'll be very, very generous, maybe low double digits. How many weddings was Bush invited to by graduate students? Did anybody ever consult him about their spiritual state? My father, in an unpublished sikhad, I don't have the text in front at the moment, but I'll tell you more or less, my father told the following amazing story. When he was in the middle of graduate school, he began to feel Chalisha's Hadas. He began to feel that he was straying too far from Torah, that he was becoming too disconnected, and maybe he was too, highly, too heavily invested in his graduate studies, maybe he should stop. He went to speak, not to the Rav, but to Bush. And uh, rather than, now, a professor of English at Harvard, at the height of his profession, of his powers, uh, one would expect him to say to him, are you crazy? Uh, of course you should continue. Uh, Bush said to him, you know something? I often are disturbed by the very same doubts. I think to myself, so Bush said to my father, that I know many of Dryden's sonnets better than I know some of Tehili. And, it, and I'm deeply disturbed by this. After a long conversation in which they spoke about the value of the humanities for, um, for spiritual uh, welfare in general, my father was convinced, he stayed on, and uh, now, I, now I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, how many people in the world could be both the town of Hudu and of Douglas Bush? My guess is, nobody else, 
Maybe once in a door, maybe once in a hundred years can such a combination exist. In all this, in the context, not a bifurcated life, but a life fully integrated in harmony with itself. I would add, in a similar vein, when I was a first year student at Hebrew University, and Shonavavad Shvatavetzion, I took a course with Professor Mark Steiner, who was teaching that year Descartes' Meditations. One day I met my father in the hallway, and he said to me, somewhat complimented, I think, uh, to just go off the phone with Steiner, who had called that's a Shiloh. And they prefaced it with the remark, of Lichtenstein, I have a Shiloh that I think that you are the only reverend in the world who could answer. When I teach Descartes, should I pronounce the Lukim with a hey or with a kuf? Although presumably not the only one who can answer that question, he's, my father and Kapar Shkavu was certainly one of the very few who could. Integration within his soul extended not only to general studies of the Torah, but to many other areas as well. The reason being, it was not a philosophical intellectual determination that Torah and Chacham were compatible. Rather, it was an approach to life at large. So Torah and Chesed, army service and Talmud Torah, family and yeshiva and other values were all integrated within his soul. This integration, the underlying harmony that accompanied it, often cleared the way for integrity that was disarming its honesty. I refer not only to his ability to quote Dostoevsky or Aquinas to make Midrash, nor to his willingness to reference Newt Rock and stem music without considering pastis for Rosh Hashiva, to even admit familiarity with these figures, let alone quote them or learn from their actions, so I refer also to this, but even more so to many occasions in which my father addressed awkward and potentially charged situations, the elephant within the room, with total and disarming sincerity. Many of these examples cannot be told over since they still retain sensitivities which I feel uncomfortable in revealing in any crowd, certainly not such a large crowd. Um, if I limit myself to one or two minor examples. Uh, my father was awarded Prasi Israel last year. We made a short, ga- we made a small gathering of uh, staff members in Yeshiva after he was, it was announced he was awarded the prize. My father spoke then for about 35 minutes off the cuff uh, without any prior planning about his feelings about receiving such a prize. What was interesting was after he spoke about uh, it wasn't only himself, it was the entire staff, Everyone was uh, partners with his achievement, uh, and he gave a compliments to the whole institution and to, and to all the rabbim and so on and so forth. He began to talk to them whether prizes are important or not. And my father believed the prizes were important, actually. But he, after he spoke about that for a brief while, he then began to talk about the, prob- the problematics of receiving a prize. And he began to speak about how he... On the one hand, how he was bothered by kavod, but knew that he appreciated kavod. And he quoted from one of the mashgichim of the Musa movement, I forget exactly who, who made the following statement. Um, when, I get into, when I walk into a room and people stand when I get into the room, uh, I feel so awkward and embarrassed. I know how worthless I am. I know how undeserving I am. I know how garnished I am. And everyone stands up for me. However, continue the same Muslim uh, luminary, and my father basically applied these words to himself. When people don't get up, I know how I feel even worse. 
And with this honesty, he spoke about the fact that, yes, he enjoyed kavod. And he was willing to, because he, everything was integrated and honest, he was willing to put this on the table and to discuss it. Um, my father wrote a piece for the YU volume, my Shiva College, 75 Years of Memories. And he was willing there to discuss the fact that YU had its problems and its issues. One would think in a celebratory volume, in one in which uh, it's basically written for to enjoy and to be nostalgic, uh, that you would only emphasize the positive. My father begins, uh, a wealthy and patriotic Texan, the father of two talented sons, wanted them to attend West Point. They, for their part, very much sought to yeshiva. They compromised, so the word ran in Berlin, where I learned prior to coming to Yeshiva University. The sons went to Yitzchak al-Khanan. It was a pallid joke, reflecting the brand of condescending chauvinism, then very much in vogue, etc., etc. However, my father continues, and yet, judge retrospectively, the remark was not uttered without foundation. And then he begins to discuss the shortcomings that he felt in YU. I said before, there were many more sensitive issues that he discussed, which I feel uh, unworthy of mentioning here. He could do this because people knew he was totally honest, and there was nothing, no agenda, no spike. During the Shiva, a post an important post uh, came to us, and I asked him whether he told my father about Psak. He said to me, on the one hand, I, he would have been an ideal uh, post for me. And why? He said, for two reasons. First of all, he never shot from the hip. Everything was thorough. Everything was well thought out. Secondly, and from the fact that he had to praise this, I understood that apparently it's not self-evident, uh, he had no agendas. When he passed, he was simply Apparently, it's not always such apparently. Uh, and, uh, but at any rate, uh, my father could say all these statements because people knew there were no agendas. It was simply, the, his integrity was such that it was, uh, he, could, he could relate to these situations. I, to conclude this section, and uh, this is basically the main section, uh, as I quote a few more lines from the poem that I uh, mentioned before. Everyone in Haaretzion talks about Milton, 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 Milton. Rav Lichtenstein, Havet Milton. For some reason, Matthew Arnold hasn't feared us well, uh, even though I think my father quoted Matthew Arnold probably more than Milton. Uh, but I will quote from his poem that, my, that the line I mentioned before comes from... Um, whose even-balanced soul from first youth tested up to extreme old-aged, business could not make dull nor passion wild, who saw life steadily and saw it whole. I think, indeed, my father from first youth, if not, if not to extreme old age, which she wasn't Zohar, but to old age, certainly, from first youth to, to, extreme, to, to old age, he saw life, indeed, steadily and saw it whole. And this integrity integration I have in mind. At this point... And to be brief, because of the time constraints, I want to shift my focus from his impact on Talmudian as a person to his role as Rosh Hashiva. And here, a very brief word of a stark introduction is necessary. Reb Chaim Brisker began his career as a Magidshir in the Yeshiva, and as a Rav, whose primary teaching role was limited to family and a handful of Talmudim. Subsequently, Reb Chaim's legacy was split between Talmudim and family, creating two separate conduits to transmit his Messorah. And this has many implications, which tonight is not the uh, time to discuss them. Um, however, what matters to, in, in this context are the institutional implications. 
the briskers did not join the yeshiva world, they did not learn yeshivot, they did not belong to yeshivot, they did not know how to run yeshivot. From Reb Chaim himself, who didn't see, apparently thought they lacked the character, the toughness, and the kshichut, as they say in Hebrew, to administer institution, to Reb Velvul, dining room, to Reb Moshe Salvejik, who was much of a firebrand to be Rosh Yeshiva, none of the original briskers were successful Rosh Yeshiva. Just leave Reb Chaim. He became a rav rather than open Yeshiva, despite the fact that many of his peers who saw themselves as his Talmidim, who opened yeshivot, become the flagship institutions, they were all familiar during the very same years. The years between 1892 and 1918, so many major institutions were open, it Reb Chaim did not feel he had the character or the personality to establish an institution. Even the Rav, who taught at yeshiva, he was really Magid Shir, never the head of institution. He was the leader of modern orthodoxy, he was one of the leaders of orthodoxy in general, he was not to leave his own institution. My father himself uh, wrote about this in that same piece I quoted from before. The Rav's situation was entirely different. He was a stimulant of his favorite self-image, peerless, and his contact with those who was fortunate to learn from him was not only direct but electrifying. And yet, at the plane of institutional leadership, his role was also limited. He set a tone but did not take charge. He did, not conceive, he did not conceive himself as the head, titular, practical of reads, and even if he had his question, they could discharge the duties of the office effectively. He conceived the smicha program, initiated its implementation mid-decade, but on the whole, the demands of such a role, overseeing faculty, tracking Talmudim, the nuts and bolts of curriculum planning, periodically addressing the student body, and consistent meaningful interpersonal contact with a wide range of individual students were not his cup of tea, he knew all this was important, but that was not his strength. And he goes on to continue, he goes on along in this vein. My father was able to, to fuse the world of brisk with the world of the yeshiva. He was a brisker son-in-law, but not a brisker son. He was able to combine the best of both worlds. My grandmother, Leah Shalom, was part and parcel of the Fuen yeshiva world, whose values she instilled in my father, and whom she provided the yeshiva upbringing by Sentechai in Berlin. More important than biographical element was his temperament. The brisker intensity and extreme extre- extremity, when turned inward, produced mixed results. I'll be honest. As my father, Irene Kabbas Mishkova, once remarked to me, the briskers swing for the fences. They therefore either home runs or strikeouts. He then added that with the rub, they hit a grid slam. But he also noted that there were other less successful examples as well. When directed toward the masses and not their own family, there was no chance of success with such intensity. My father, Harani Kabarsmishkov's moderate temperament and even keel, allowed him to succeed where they failed. Thus, he was able to fuse the brisk insist upon intense learning and high standards with educational approach, he was able to effectively instill in Talmudim standards of a smothered analysis in a manner that was palatable and appreciated by them. Yeshivat Haritzion has undergone two major uh, traumas in the past five years. Ramital's Ptira and now my father's. Yet we are confident that we can continue navigating the ship, not because of the merit of ourselves, because both my father and Mital were masters, not of interpersonal contact, but in creating institutional norms 
and in institutional culture, they created a whole world of um, whole culture of tefillah, of Torah, of Siddha Yeshiva, that all they have to do is really continue their legacy. And they were institution builders, and they build institutions and such solid foundations that the work is simply to continue what was begun and just to, uh, just to move forward. I began with the feeling, with the intensity of the feelings of my father, was able to instill in Talmidah, but Talmidah, Talmidah. These feelings of affirmation, while they believed in and proved the value of education and the spiritual life is practiced properly. My father would often quote Shelley's, the poets, the Anakinol's, the legislator of the world, and a similar sentiment in French from Victor Hugo. His accomplishments and achievements certainly serve as a proof of that. Through education, what my father would refer to in another of his favorite quotes, as my station and its duties, he indeed left the world a better place, and I'm Israel and Rebbe Israel, better of De Hashem. As I mentioned before, I, I could and should address many of the areas of his achievement, such as public influence, community leadership, as well as Lomas and Psak, but there are other opportunities for that. I will therefore conclude the final point and leave the others for other times. My father, Yankabars Mishkova, was, as I stated before, the primary representative and premier ideologue of modern, of an orthodoxy that preaches integration of Chachma and other values into Torah, that want to utilize all means to see life whole. His ptira is passing on to a better world, thrust upon us a responsibility to continue in his footsteps. In a very perceptive letter that we received during the Shiva from a, from a Menachem, who was both a real bentor and a true intellectual, he observed, and I quote, of late, I've been concerned why he says the decline was come to be called modern orthodoxy. The modern are losing their orthodoxy and the orthodox their modernity. The passing of Agon Reb Aaron Zetzal did not relieve that concern. End of quote. I suspect that most of us would agree with his observation and with the implicit plea of his to further the, to further the cause of turn of orthodoxy. This canon must be done in the, in the way that my father, Enkabar Yishkavu, guided us, namely through intense Torah learning uncompromising and apologetic lambdus, coupled with a deep appreciation of all that's noble in life and the recognition of the tools that allow us to see life whole, to see life steadily and to appreciate it. My father, Harmeni Kavrosh Rebbe, Rebbe Salvation Gzatzal, concluded his husband on the Ravik Wayu, so I am told, by quoting the Gwarantanis that tells the story of the Kohanim who threw the keys of the Mikdash to heaven at the time of the Chorban. Let me mention... The Gemara Shoshana tells us that Kasha mitat tzadikim kesifat beit elokeinu. The tear of a tzadik is, a, is just like a chorban. Rabbi Aaron commented at the time that the Kohanim were in error, presumed because of the chorban. They should not have thrown the keys to heaven. They should have said, Rabbi Aaron, lay them on the floor for the next generation to come, pick them up and use them. Let me add, a key is something which can be duplicated. I don't talk about duplicating it exactly the way you do with a real key. But I do talk about the fact that a key can be used, the key is not, a key can be used to then multiply. You can give keys to many, many people. You can take your key and use it as a master to produce many, many other keys. Rabban Salvation, in another of his addresses, 
spoke powerfully about the fact the keys are lying under Abba's head. The maftichot are in the pillow that the father is lying upon. Rabbi uses a metaphor to talk about the fact that every child can find the keys under his father's pillow. And what's true of biological children is true just as well of spiritual children. The keys are munachi mitachat lirosho shel Abba Rabbeinu. It's up to us to take the keys, to pick them up as survivors of education wanted from us, and to move forward. To take these keys, to open many doors, to reach beneath the pillow, to take the keys, not to let him remain a shining example, something unattainable, but rather to have his measures continue to animate us. It's up to us to take my father's message forward, to develop a vibrant and a vital modern orthodoxy. One which is Torah true on the one hand and true to life. If we, as the writer complained of, if we become, if the modern loses the orthodoxy, the orthodox the modernity will be tragic. We must continue to move forward in both levels, the way my father guided us and the way he expected of us. As I said at the beginning, this essentially is inclusion of a period of Avelus, a period of Hespade. Very few, the vast majority of Hespadim are basically, the period of Hespade is uh, winding down. On Friday, we went to the unveiling of Matseva, the Kamas Matseva in Israel. At conclusion, I quote the Marantanis, and with this I'll conclude here as well. The Gemara, excuse me, the Gemara might cut in, excuse me. The Gemara says as follows. Ma'ase umeitu banash Rebekiva. Rebekiva is an Avelus. They made in honor of Rebekiva a huge hespid. The sense of tragedy, the sense of loss, Rebekiva's connection and stature all caused a hespid gadol. Bishas Rasan, when the spadim were all over, when it was time to conclude the spadim, Rebekiva got up, stood in the high chair, the Amar, and he said the following, Achenu Beis Yisrael, Shimu, Listen to me. I am. I have my nechama. Afilu shnei banim munachi minuchamu vishul kavod yasitem. All the kavod you did provides comfort and solace. I feel comforted by all the spading. The im vishul akiva basem. You came for akiva. Harei kama akiva bashuk. Look how many akivas there are in the world. El akacha martem torat elokav bilibo. Torah is in his soul, it animates him. The coach against Rachem Kaful, Luchul Batichem Shalom. I say the same thing. It was a Hespade Gadol for 40 days. It's been a long and protracted Hespade because we all felt such deep feelings. It's been a Hespade Gadol. You came, Lichvod, not Aaron, but Rav Aaron, because you said Torah Elokav Bilibom. And may his legacy and memory and Torah continue to guide us. Amen.
Let's go. 